Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm -hmm. Come together. Welcome to the Fem South Quarantine episode. I'm your host, Lee Bancroft, and we're going to be talking today about Octavia Butler's science fiction dystopian novel, The Parable of the Sower. And my co-host today is Shannon Fountain. This episode was recorded using Zoom technology in our closets and in our living rooms. To be honest, though, we're probably going to be using Zoom for the foreseeable future, so this will be just the first of many Zoom recordings. Since we are using Zoom, you will hear a difference in the sound quality and a few glitches here and there, but please bear with us. We're doing the best that we can. We certainly didn't want to miss this opportunity to talk about Octavia Butler's novel and what's happening right now with this current pandemic, and what a perfect time to talk about dystopian fiction. So let's get started. And we are coming to you live from quarantine in Shannon's closet and my home recording studio. So hi, Shannon. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Lee. It's a pleasure to meet you here at Zoom from my closet. And I can see you. You're sitting in your closet with clothes all around you, uh, which makes for a great sound room, actually. Gotta make do in a pinch. Yeah. So we're going to be talking today about the book that we're reading in our book club, Octavia Butler's The Parable of the Sower. And what better time to talk about a dystopian science fiction novel than right now, right? Yeah, the timing wound up being better than I expected when... We talked about me becoming book club coordinator. One of the things I really wanted to do was to read a sci-fi book because that has always been one of my loves is sci-fi and fantasy. And Octavia Butler is one of the greats um, in the sci-fi canon. But unlike most science fiction writers, she was a black female um, born in 1950. And... Her, she has a really interesting history. She was an only child. She felt very outsiderish. I think she spent a lot of time in the library. Um, definitely her race play, and her gender played a role in her upbringing. Um, I believe her mom was a maid in California, and she remembers going into work with her. Um, but she was so determined to write that she would take jobs just for the money, get up at 2 a.m., write for hours, go into her day job, and that was her life for years and years. She's really an inspiration. Yeah, she is an interesting author, especially in this genre. We read or we watched 
Julie Dash's interview with her, and she talked about actually sort of resisting the title of science fiction author. And I think what makes her a really interesting author is that she, I think she doesn't overdo the science fiction part of it. It's, I mean, I'm not even sure that we would call this particular novel science fiction. It's more dystopian, but even still, like she doesn't go too heavy into like imagined science. Everything feels very real and possible in her work. You're not having to like go through these details of complicated and, and uh, in imagining new worlds. I mean, she basically takes the world that we live in and really just extends what is possible in the future if we continue on our same trajectory, which of course is typical of dystopian novels, but for her, for some reason hers feels more authentic in that regard. I think it was, I think because she's so intelligent and perceptive, she wrote this book in 1993. Um, the book was set for the year 2024. And while, thank God, we are not quite at the state here in 2020 that this book describes, it is really a few frames away from being true in a way that is, is kind of terrifying and also very fascinating. Yeah, can we, how about this, we take this opportunity to kind of give a brief overview of the book for people who haven't read the book. Yes. So this book is The Parable of the Sower. Um, Octavia Butler wrote a sequel called The Parable of the Talents and had planned a third book, but unfortunately she she died prematurely and was not able to finish that text. So we only have the first two books. And we begin in a suburb of Los Angeles in 2024. The protagonist is a black teenager named Laura Olamina, and she lives in a walled community because at this point the subdivisions have had to wall themselves off from the poverty and violence that is all around them. So her mother died young and her father is a Baptist preacher and a college professor. So we learn about the current state of society and what she feels is the inevitable future for herself and other young people as she's describing her day-to-day -day life within her family and her community. And then something big happens. And that's when we start shifting into her desire to shape her own future and the future of our world. And that's something big that happens is that the outside community, the what has gone to chaos uh, outside of the wall, these walled communities are people who are desperate, who have turned to crime, who are stealing and um, and setting fire to everything. And so they come through the gate and, of course, set fire to the entire neighborhood and force and kill most of the people in the neighborhood. And those that survive are forced into an exile, this kind of great migration that's happening along the west coast up to the north of people who are walking and trying to get to a place where they think is they're going to be able to um, have more opportunity, uh, have a paying job because jobs are scarce, paying jobs are even more scarce. And so people are just trying to do what they can to survive. And you have all these people that have been um, basically left homeless because of these fires that are being set by desperate people 
but also people who are on this drug that that makes people want to set fire to things and watching the things burn brings them some kind of pleasure so it's this kind of weird drug that she has invented that a lot of people have succumbed to so the second half of the novel is her on this migration and picking up disciples along the way people that that she trusts that and they sort of come together and form this team and they are trying to find another member has this place in California where his his family lived where he believes he might still have a home but he's trying to get to and eventually they all go there and so she's trying to build as she's in on this migration this exile she's formulating and she had already been doing this at home behind the wall of her neighborhood she's formulating this new religion and she's trying to bring this new religion into fruition through these new participants that are coming along and eventually they're going to hopefully the hope is that they're going to create a new community when they get to some place where they can do so, something like that and build a new community with the religion as the center of that new community right is that a decent overview yes and I'll add that Lauren is able to survive and move forward because she is a very intelligent, powerful, realistic young woman. She's and she's doubly exceptional because she has a disability that she has had to hide from those around her. And this is this is the speculative fiction part of it. Her mother abused a drug when she was pregnant with Lauren that makes gives her something called hyperempathy syndrome. And what that means is she shares the feelings of the people around her. So when she was a child, if another kid fell and scraped their knee, she would feel that as if she had scraped her own knee. And her father encouraged her to keep that a secret only within the family because obviously that was a tool that could be used against her. And it also may, makes her survival in this violent world even more difficult. But she's very determined. Many of the people in her community think that somehow everything's going to get back to the good old days and that if they can just hold on through this downturn that things will become good again. Um, Lauren is not buying that. She is seeing the writing on the walls and making plans to survive. And that is part of why she's able to come out of this destruction of her community so well because she was prepared. She has a purpose, which is to um, create a new religion and a new new community of her own of her own making. Yeah, so thank you. That's a great segue into the first kind of topic point that I wanted to address. There are definitely many themes to talk about in this book, but one of the sort of overarching themes is this idea of getting back to normal, which is what all the adults want to do, versus the idea of creating something new, which is what Lauren wants to do. And there's this myth, the, the, the Phoenix myth really runs throughout the story. The, the catalyst for the sort of post-apocalyptic period that we're in, the catalyst has been climate change, has been global warming. 
that's the big destructive force in the novel. Yes, there's been there's been no rain in the Los Angeles area for about six years. Six years, yeah. And, and water water is so scarce that people have to purchase it, and it's more expensive than gasoline. Yeah, so there's this theme of everything's burning. So everything is burning because of the climate. Everything is dry, but also the drug that's run rampant is creating this overwhelming desire for the people that are on the drug to set fire to everything. So there's this theme of everything's burning and everything has fallen to ashes. And so the Phoenix myth, she even has that in her diary when she's writing down the new religion, this idea that the Phoenix has to rise out of the ashes, but the Phoenix has to recognize itself first before it can do that. And so that's what I kind of want to talk about first is like the conflict between those that are waiting for things to get back to normal, essentially, that believe that everything can go back to normal, that has, they have a trust in the previous system, whereas she doesn't trust it. She, she doesn't trust the religion. She doesn't trust the politics. She doesn't trust the gate and the community. She knows it's inevitable that somebody's going to come barging through that gate, that it can't ultimately protect them. And so she wants to. Not only does she want to create something new through her religion, but she wants to arm herself and learn how to survive. And, but all of this is very secret because most of the people in the community, including her father, are trying to kind of keep everything as normal as possible, keep everybody kind of closed off from the reality of the situation outside of the wall that is in, impending, which I think is really interesting. So what are your thoughts on some of that? I think the adults know more than they're letting on to the children, and particularly Lauren's father, but they are afraid of scaring the children. And so I think that's part of the component to it. Um, and also, just denial is a very comforting mechanism, and a lot of people are either just in survival mode, not thinking about what comes next, or in denial and hoping against hope that things get better. Meanwhile, Lauren wants to create something new, but in outside society, besides the general deconstruction of society, there's also a lot of return to older paradigms that we had left behind. For example, um, indentured servitude is making a comeback. De facto slavery is making a comeback. And the privatization of cities and towns is is resurging. Like the old, what do they call, company towns, like old mining towns where the company basically owns the town. And, you know, you buy all your food from the company and you get paid in company script, which is not legal currency. So everything is falling apart, and some things are falling, as we would say, backwards. Lauren is seeing very clearly that her only opportunity in this system is to try to move the changes in her favor. And that's at the root of her, you know, we keep saying religion, and it's true, but what she comes up with, I think, is more of a belief system, almost akin to Buddhism. It doesn't require real faith in any particular divinity. I think because her father is a pastor, she has latched on to religion as a way to 
teach people, to lead people, to inspire people, um, to organize people. And so she has come up with this new uh, belief system that she calls Earthseed, and she envisions God as change. And she believes that God is neither positive nor negative, but that there is somewhat of a symbiotic dance between mankind and divinity, and that they each influence each other but that humanity can basically nudge God in their direction with preparation and um, intelligence. Yeah, I think that there's so much parallel between Lauren and her father. And one of the reasons why I think the Phoenix myth is so useful in this novel for her is that the new civilization, the new thing emerges out of the ashes of the old. And so she's building on the old being her father's religion. There are a lot of benefits to what her father's religion is providing for this community. The, the neighborhood cares for one another. If, if there's something in need, they all come together and provide resources. Um, they eventually get a community watch going. But there's like... um. There's a sense that maybe not everybody likes each other. Maybe not everybody knows each other really well, but they're all there to support one another and take care of each other. And in fact, the father doesn't want to leave because that is so secure, at least at, at the moment. I think that she takes on that as a part of like what she's going to provide, but then she takes it into a new direction. So she's building on that idea, on that, um, that, that model that her father has given her. But interestingly, the book opens with her, it's her and her father share the same birthday. She's 15, I think he's 50. So there's this kind of parallel going, this kind of similarity between their numbers and their birth dates and things like that. But she's getting ready to go to a baptism because he wants to baptize these young people. And this is when she starts to say that this is not her God. His God is not her God. And she doesn't believe in this baptism. And it's really interesting to think then about what baptism represents versus the reality of what's going on in the world around them and why his religion no longer really serves the community in the way that is going to sustain them through this crisis. And so like the baptism is of course like a preservation for dying. Like it's not a focus on how to live life now. It's a focus on what's going to happen to your soul once you die. It's looking towards death and not in the here and now, which I think is really interesting. I think Lauren looks at her father's religion and doesn't see enough room for personal agency. And that is what she's getting at with Earthseed. She, she knows that in order to create something out of the ashes of society, she's going to have to take some initiative and to act wisely and to act based on reality as she sees it. So the conflicts between her and her dad regarding religion, I just think she sees her dad as religion is no longer being useful or practical or applicable to the current state of, of society and certainly not useful to her personally. Yeah, she really positions God as this in, in the faith of her father, her father's God as this, um, you know, traditional God that is omnipotent, that is omniscient, that has a hand in everything. 
at least this is what, you know, her father would believe. So then therefore everyone is kind of victim to what God wants, God's plan that's already designed. And she's resisting that because, well, for one, then everyone is just kind of playing the victim role and waiting around to protect themselves and not taking the initiative to make their own future. Again, that's that relying on the system that has been, that's always been there to like hold through the crisis. And somehow when they get back to normal, it's all been something that's happening to them, not something that they have any agency in or control of. Just to give you an idea of what she's talking about, every chapter begins with a few of her Earthseed verses. So I'd like to read a couple of those to give a better idea of what we're talking about when we talk about Lauren's um, new religion that she's creating. So here's a good one. It's at the beginning of chapter three. And she, oh, she calls this book that she's writing Earthseed, the Books of the Living, which is a nice counterpoint to um, the Egyptian or Tibetan books of the dead. And I will say that one thing Lauren's father has done for her is give her a really good wide education because she has been exposed to a lot of material, not only from her own religion, but from many religions. So here we go. We do not worship God. We perceive and attend God. We learn from God. With forethought and work, we shape God. In the end, we yield to God. We adapt and endure, for we are earth seed, and God is change. Here's another one from chapter 22. As wind, as water, as fire, as life, God is both creative and destructive, demanding and yielding, sculptor and clay. God is infinite potential. God is change. How I interpret that is Lauren is angling herself to be the good ground. She's not going to wait for things just to happen and see whether things work out well for her or not, or whether, you know, she just is one of the many victims that don't make it. She is preparing herself to be the good ground that the seed can fall on from which something new and fruitful can begin. So there's the agency piece again. Yeah, and I think I might would add to that the idea that her God, her notion of God is one that is is indifferent. So the idea then that God is powerful yet malleable is this interesting thing that she plays around with that that God is both destructive and creative. And then so therefore the seeds that are planted, this fertile ground is one that can continuously be tended to that is ever changing, that is not static in other words. So there isn't any one sort of, this is the way it should be. It's, it, there's a recognition that humans already are creating religion although she doesn't explicitly say that, but we have the ability to create it. Once we realize and recognize that's what we're doing, really, um, then we can change it and make it fit what we need, especially during the, what's happening in the world. We can change the religion to fit the needs of the world. 
Well, I would say that Lauren's conception of God is more like a natural force, even more than a divinity. And the fact that she calls what she describes God at all, I think, is a reflection of growing up Baptist. I don't think you would have to call it God at all. And again, you know, this thing she comes up with is, in my mind, more of a belief system than than really a religion. But moving forward with this, as these exiles from the old neighborhood hit the road and pick up more and more people, Lauren is interested in converting people to her belief, um, not forcefully. In fact, I think many of my favorite parts of the book are when she is interacting with people in an attempt to draw them both into the group and also into her belief system. And she does so so masterfully. And one of the things that she believes is, is diversity, because in this future world she creates, the racism has actually gotten worse. And to be seen in a mixed race group is to make yourself a target for attack. Um, however, Lauren grew up in a neighborhood that was multiracial. And in fact, her stepmother was Hispanic and Lauren grew up bilingual. Her younger siblings were half Hispanic and half African-American. So she makes a point as they travel of picking up a variety of people, even with the knowledge that that could endanger them and make them more of a target. I want to go back to something that you said a few minutes ago, because it made me want to ask the question, then what is the difference between religion and a belief system? Is she creating the beginnings of what could become a religion? Well, it's really interesting you bring that up, because I think Lauren's original text, I would call a belief system. There's nothing about petitioning God or um, almost no belief in supernatural forces or in mysticism. One of the people she meets along the road becomes her um, life partner and in book two, the father of her child, spoiler alert. One of the things he says about her belief system, of which he's, he's a little cynical, is that it's too simple and that as she recruits more people to it, they're going to add more layers of sort of superstition and mysticism and claptrap and make it more complicated than she intended because that's what humanity tends to do. She's starting to get into the buildings of, of utopianism when she's talking about building this new community, which oftentimes must emerge out of dystopianism or some kind of crisis or conflict to create a whole new way of living and way of believing. I found a few more verses that I'd like to read that would be easy to sink in with some of the things we've talked about. So this is chapter 14. In order to rise from its own ashes, a phoenix first must burn. And I think that the big difference between Lauren and everyone around her is that she's not resisting the burning. She's seeing the destruction as an opportunity to get through it to the next. And that is what, that's what's driving her. That's what's guiding and initiating all of her action is getting to the next phase and, and being able to um, shape it to her desire rather than just blindly accepting whatever happens. 
here's another verse from chapter 17. Embrace diversity. Unite or be divided. Robbed, ruled, killed by those who see you as prey. Embrace diversity or be destroyed. That reminds me of Audre Lorde and Sister Outsider. Yes, that is very overtones of Audre Lorde, isn't it? You know, one one theme that really came through this for me um, on a personal level is the theme of trust. Because this is such a dangerous world that she's growing up in. And especially once she's outside the relative safety of her community and they're exiled on the road, learning who to trust and gaining the trust of others is a major theme because everyone is suspicious. And to make one wrong decision in this world is, is death. Death is the consequence for almost any mistake you might make. And so seeing who Lauren chooses to trust, even when they might not seem that trustworthy, and also the decision to trust each other in this community that she's building while they travel to what they hope will be their stopping place, this piece of land that um, her partner has. It's relatively isolated and they hope will be a place of um, retreat. Yeah, I like that you bring up the theme of trust. I think that, you know, one of the real dangers that she sees in this society is that once the economy has broken down, there's a larger widespread homelessness, unemployment. Um, so people are desperate and extreme violence is the result of the extreme desperation of the majority of the people who, first of all, were not privileged enough to be in, tucked away in a, in a comfortable suburb behind a wall. Um, there seems to be this other kind of, this sort of hierarchy, but we don't really know a lot about it, but we kind of know that it's there. It's mentioned with some of the big corporations and the space program and the politics still seem to be kind of still happening. Um, I mean, there's an election that's still taking place. So there's, there's some things that are still kind of intact, but the majority of the people fall into the middle class category or are poor as poor can be. And so this extreme need has created extreme violence. And like, I mean, extreme violence. When they go to the other side of the wall, they see you know, dismembered bodies and dead people lying around and naked people and people with sores and infestations and because there's no water, they can't stay clean, there's no places for people to live, they're just all out on the streets. And so the idea of trusting people becomes even more of a, a concern because even people that might otherwise be good have lost hold of their humanity because they're trying so desperately to stay alive to keep their children alive and yet she still finds people along the way that despite all of this are still capable of trusting so we still have like something deep within us that wants to trust that wants to come together and build community for protection and i also want to tack on that her real ultimate goal is the stars Interesting. And this is yes. maybe where Octavia Butler's background as a science fiction writer comes out because the ultimate goal of Earthseed is to take humanity out 
off the planet Earth. And Lauren has no idea how that's going to happen. It's amazing that she would even consider such a thing, given that they are struggling just to stay alive and to have enough water and food. But she knows that's her ultimate goal. She's a very big picture girl. But it also kind of sets up this idea that there's this push and pull between technology and advancement and progress. And she has a vision. She is able to see that our future is going to be out in the stars off the planet Earth, probably because planet Earth is like on its way out, but also because she's able to see so much further. And she truly is a visionary in that sense. But I also think it's interesting that we've had this discussion now as we've like over the last I don't know a few years been talking about having a space force and what it would be like if we occupied space and you know who controls and owns what like if we can't get it right here on earth if we can't find peace on earth how can we expect to find peace in the universe on another planet how can how can we build peace from chaos I kind of felt like you have to get it right on Earth before you can move out into the stars. You don't have to get it right on Earth. You just have to get the right people to colonize outer space. Well, then who's you, the right? <laughs> who are the right people? Uh, well, Lauren's people, the Earth seed people. That's I think that's part of what she's doing because you know, as we talk about this theme of trust, so many people are just trying to survive, and it makes them very self-centered, and that's part of why the violence is increasing because it's every man woman child for themselves even if you have to rob even if you have to kill because they see that is their only way forward lauren is trying to teach people that you can get farther with collaboration than competition yes that's what earth seed is about and so those are the people she wants to send to colonize another planet are the people whom she has taught the value of collaboration. Yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying and I agree with you. I do think that she is looking at collaboration as a central concept for this new community that she's creating. So I think this might be a great place for us to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get into this current pandemic, uh, COVID-19, and how there are so many eerie similarities between this book and Butler's vision for our future and what's currently happening right now. So please stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Well, I wanted to know what women in the South are thinking about feminism and to give Southern women a voice in the feminist movement. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I, I think I do, yes. Absolutely. I don't like defining myself as a feminist because when I tell someone I'm a feminist, they automatically go that way. While I will say, yes, I am a feminist, there's I know that there's going to be explanation after that. Like, I'm going to have to explain myself. So, so I feel like this Southern culture, especially in the Black culture, we were always like, you know, men first, women second. And then also, I didn't know what, feminist men. I feel like I am a feminist. I'm just not an aggressive feminist. I'm a feminist. I'm probably a quieter feminist. And I just pick and choose which things to be stronger feminist advocate about. I do believe feminism is for everybody. 
So let's pull this back in and talk about why we chose to read this book and what is its relevance to our current situation. Well, how about you answer the question as to why we chose to read this book since this was one that you really wanted to read and you put on our book list. I proposed this book as being our sci-fi selection because of the strength of the writer. Octavia Butler is an amazing writer. Because of the prescience of the book itself, it's almost eerie in how easily you could see the world she creates, our world becoming that world. Um, I also wanted to read her because even though it might be a more subtle theme in this book, she really writes very heavily about themes of race, gender, and power. You might have to look a little deeper than some of her other books to see them, but they're definitely there. Um, she also writes about themes of disability and, you know, her, the protagonist in this book does have an invisible disability and we learn about how she copes and adapts with that. So in other words, this is a pretty intersectional text. I mean, I think when we were developing our book list, that was our primary goal was to make sure that we were selecting intersectional writers. So we achieved that goal with Octavia Butler on many different fronts, right? That is true. Octavia Butler is nothing if not intersectional. And actually, another one of her books named Kindred is pretty common reading in a lot of feminist curricula. It's an intersectional book. It's definitely um, a feminist text. It's a very strong female character who challenges not only the patriarchal religion represented by her father that her father is a leader in, but she questions the um, the gender of God. She develops her own religion. So, and she's kind of like the Lady Lazarus of Sylvia Plath's poem, Lady Lazarus, right? She is the phoenix that rises. She creates her own religion. So she's a really interesting, um, a really interesting voice, I think. Let's pull back to what's the, what's the relevance, what's the pertinence of, of this to now? Well, I think that it's so interestingly and eerily relevant right now. In fact, we've been learning about and following Naomi Klein, and we just watched the Rising Majorities webinar with Angela Davis and Naomi Klein and some others where they talk about disaster capitalism which is there's a lot of parallels with what Lauren is dealing with and talking about with her religion and Earthseed. And I would like to just read one of her entries into her Earthseed book. When apparent stability disintegrates, as it must, God is change. People tend to give in to fear and depression, to need and greed. When no influence is strong enough to unify people, they divide. They struggle one against one, group against group, for survival, position, power. They remember old hates and generate new ones. They create chaos and nurture it. They kill and kill and kill until they are exhausted and destroyed, until they are conquered by outside forces, or until one of them becomes a leader most will follow, or a tyrant most fear. Naomi Klein and Angela Davis talked about what they called um, disaster capitalism. When there's a crisis, 
basically there's this window of opportunity on both sides where currently right now we have this possibility of our administration taking more of an authoritative role seizing this opportunity to do more of their agenda especially behind closed doors where we can't see or, or do anything about also there's this opportunity now to do stuff differently to not fall back into our old routines to challenge old ways of doing things to challenge capitalism and so like for example universal health care might be you know something that we really now are more willing to consider whereas just a month or so ago it it was a radical idea for most people and so i really like this idea that when there is a crisis like this that it's also an opportunity for something really new to develop so that we need more innovation during times like this and more unification during times like this which is i think yes. what lauren is the is the progressive character she's the visionary she's the one with the new ideas what we are calling a crisis is is a change in our normal way of doing things yeah we're also having to become more aware of underlying systems of things that basically keep our economy going, that keep us comfortable. We're now seeing all these different connections and, and how they're vulnerable. Another thing that I see reflected with the current rate of unemployment and this book is how destructive joblessness and poverty is to everyone in society and how we really are enmeshed with each other in ways that we don't always think about because in the book the reason why the middle class were having to wall themselves off is because as people descended further into joblessness and poverty they became so desperate that the middle class was literally being destroyed um, having their being killed having their neighborhoods overrun and um, that seemed very relevant yeah, I mean, we have this service industry now that we're just seeing how much they support us and, and hold everything together during a time of crisis are also our vulnerable population that are that we don't even have protections for all of them. There's all these declarations for everybody to stay in their homes. And, you know, that works for the middle class person or the average person with a good home. It's even better if you have a bigger home and a, a large piece of land and you can move around. Um, if you have a peaceful home, if, if you're not stuck now 24-7 with your abuser, uh, you don't have enough money because, you know, there's all of this population that has just kind of been left behind in a sense from this. And of course, the homeless who don't have a place to go and retreat to. So, I see that parallel there with the little suburb being the last place where these people had any kind of refuge. And then, of course, that's vulnerable. It gets invaded and burned down and nothing really is stable. Nothing really is um, safe once everything goes to crap. So you can see the connection there. Everybody's connected. You can't wall the homeless population and the violent population out. Eventually, they're going to seep in and it's all going to be a wash and everybody's going to be in the same boat because the system doesn't work anymore. Well, and another parallel that I noticed was the new president 
who was elected in the parable of the sower promised to bring back jobs, right? Because one of their major problems is joblessness, which is secondary to the fact that there's no longer free public education. So most of these people are uneducated and, you know, everything's disintegrating. There's no free public education. So then people can't get jobs and then they're homeless and poor and, <laughs> and burning down the middle class people's neighborhoods. So the president who was elected runs on the platform of bringing back jobs. But in order to bring back jobs, he loosens a lot of protections for working people. And that's why you see um, this return in the book to basically indentured servitude and people maybe having jobs, but jobs that endanger them or that jobs where they really don't have freedom to move around. So that I took note of that is that the single-minded pursuit of creating jobs in and of itself is not necessarily a worthy goal. The kind of jobs you create and the protection you create for the workers in those jobs, it, it remains important regardless of what the unemployment rate is. Yeah, and interestingly, there was also a discussion of rolling back the environmental protections as well so that the heavy regulations wouldn't impede the, the job opportunities. So then there's the, the kind of cycle that they'd get back into. All of this is a result of global warming and climate change. And then in order to fix the job problem, they have to roll back the climate and environmental regulations. So this is, this is a vision of the United States of America caught in a very vicious cycle that it is clear. It, it will be we it will be unable to extricate itself from which is why Lauren is just waiting for it all to crumble so she can create the next thing my um, environmentally conscious and socialist self and I love utopianism as well I always think that the commune of course is the best thing to get back to communal ways of living the small farms that are sustainable that are organic that are diverse deprivatization of the family and resources and all this other kind of stuff, that that's, that's true utopianism. That is what Octavia Butler's is working towards. That's what Lauren is going to, the seed that Lauren is going to plant when she gets to where she can do that. I mean, but you know, utopianism never works out. I don't know. It's interesting. That's why I always love these kinds of novels. I think, I think the reason why commune culture didn't work out is you know, reflecting some of Lauren's clear-sightedness is that there is no such thing as perfect equality, as the perfectly functioning system, as a system that is, is fair and just to every participant. That is literally impossible on this earth with this humanity. And, you know, the my faith tradition is there's an interesting paradox because we recognize the woundedness of humanity, that there's something not quite right about us, that we can't achieve perfect harmony together. But at the same time, we are taught in the Christian faith that our mission is to work towards justice and to be merciful and to care for um, the poor, the imprisoned, the widows, the orphans. But interestingly, there's not a lot of discussion about the environment and our connection with natural systems and the earth. 
I think that's why she chose earth seed. That's an important word because it denotes the seed, the nature, a system that, just like her vision of God, it's, it's a force. It's something that we, that's powerful, but that is also something that we can control, that we are connected to. Now, she, I don't think she ever really takes it far enough to say that we are God, that we are like nature ourselves, because society is what you're saying. Like there's something broken and wrong with society. It's the system that's broken and not the species. Um, but then again, the species makes the system. So then, you know, what? Yeah. I would posit that there's something in the human psyche that is almost like a, 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 a trip in an electrical circuit where we can get so far forward and then we're going to take a step back. Well, some people might say it's built into our system. It's, it's a result of, for example, not having women on board with many of the decisions of how we run society for hundreds of years or thousands of years. Well, we're not balanced. When we're not balanced, for example, I think, I mean, I could take this far, but I think she takes this. I think this is where she's going with this story is when our religion sees God as somebody who's going to step in and save us from disaster because God ultimately is the reason why the disaster happened because of punishment or whatever, then you don't take responsibility. You don't see yourself connected to the earth. Everything falls on this other being that has control of everything. And all you need to do is pray. And she says, prayer isn't going to work. It's good for the person who's praying, but it's not going to do anything. And she uses the word, the victim of God, which I think is really interesting. All we are is victims of God at that point. We can't see that we are the shapers of God. We have always been the shaper of God. We invented God through language itself. So the fact that that's true is also where we can then take whatever we need from God and use it to serve humanity. Well, I will say there's a subtle point in the book in in a conversation that Lauren has in which she's very adamant that she did not create earth seed, she discovered it by her own observations. So I don't think she sees herself as a creator of this God. I, I, she sees herself as being simply clear-eyed enough to observe and describe what is true and real. Yes, but at the same time that God is malleable, I mean, God is clay, we can manipulate it. We can mold it and form it in our own best interests. Not in the interest of our own personal needs, but in the interest of humanity and community, because she cares about humanity and community. And I think that's the big difference. So, I do want to put in a little plug about what to read next if you really enjoyed this book. Yeah, please do. Okay. So, as a good sci-fi nerd, I want to say that if you enjoyed this book, you should definitely read the sequel, which is Parable of the Talents. And you may also enjoy Margaret Atwood's book. Wait for it. It's not going to be what you think. The Year of the Flood. That book would be particularly pertinent to our current situation because it's about a plague. <laughs> but it's part of her, her Mad Adam trilogy. So Margaret Atwood's Year of the Flood has a lot of thematic similarity. If you are interested in reading more works by black women in sci-fi who deal powerfully with issues of race, gender, and power, I would suggest N.K. Jemisin. 
in particular her obelisk gate series it's called it's called the broken earth series um, another author is Nettie Okorafor she writes a dystopian Afrofuturism and two of her books that I really enjoyed are Who Fears Death and its prequel called The Book of Phoenix, interestingly enough. Well, thank you, Shannon. I'm so happy that we did this. We're probably going to be doing our podcast in the foreseeable future on Zoom. So we'll see how it goes. But um, thank you for joining me, Shannon, and talking about the parable of the sower. It was my pleasure and much more fun than I thought to sit in my closet and talk about this great book with you, Lee. <laughs> yes. Happy quarantine, Shannon. <laughs> Hope everybody is safe and doing well. Yes. Stay healthy out there. I'm still going into the hospital every day, and I hope to not see any of you there. You've been listening to the FemSouth podcast. FemSouth is a podcast produced in the deep south of Alabama. We are also a local book club and community dedicated to educating and empowering women to be the change they want to see in the world. You can get involved with FemSouth's book club by asking to join our online Facebook book club group. We're also going to be doing our book club meetings for the foreseeable future on Zoom. So you can find out more information about our events by going to our website, FemSouth.com. We would love it if you would subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and give us some positive feedback. We'd also love it if you would go to our website at FemSouth.com and subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on all of our current episodes and local events. And finally, we would really love it if you would help support us by going to Patreon slash FemSouth. For just as little as $1 to $5 a month, you can support us and help us keep producing quality content and putting on local events in our community. This is Lee, and you've been listening to Fem South.